This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Malika Basu. In this episode, I'm speaking to celebrity baker, chef, TV presenter, dancer, and author, John Wade. Hello, John. Hello. It's so good to be with you today. Oh, it's lovely to have you on. Um, I'm going to go straight in, John, with one of the most important questions. Your parents had a chip shop. Is there any better food than chips? Well, do you know, I think there is. I, I, li- I like chips. I like fish and chips, but I have to be in the mood for it. And that is very, very rare. I think for me, the f- a better food is pizza. I really love pizza. I think pizza trumps ch- fish and chips any day. I thought I might like you. This is good. This is a strong start to the conversation. Any particular topping of choice? Well, I just like a classic with a bit of cheese, bit of tomato. Um, the one, there's a, there's a great pizza restaurant locally to us that opened ooh, just before lockdown, I think. And they do, uh, one with friarelli and like mm. honey and chili and guanciale. And oh, it is so good. So I really, I, I mean, and also I love like a Korean, um, braised beef on pizza as well with blue with a blue cheese sauce oh, i mean that sounds lovely yeah i like to experiment with pizzas because they are just a perfect vessel for flavor aren't they whereas fish and chips is fish and chips fish and chips is fish and chips what about um pineapple on pizza are you a pineapple on pizza man no i don't really like that i think it's a little bit much but i won't judge anybody or wish any evil on anyone who does put a bit of pineapple on the pizza i've had it in the past and it was perfectly fine but i don't think it belongs on pizza it's too the enzyme in pineapple is just too is too 
much, isn't it? It kind of jars with the with the with the kind of pillowy bread. It's almost too tart, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I just it's not for me. Not for me. But each to their own. <laughs> Excellent. Now, on a more serious note, though, I know you helped peel potatoes behind the scenes at the chip shop. How important was that time? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, I mean, I used to peel the potatoes from about the age of I think twelve, thirteen, and. Growing up, we we had the chip shop from for as long as I can remember. I think as soon as I was born, the chip shop was there. And so I was always surrounded by food. But I think more importantly, what I was surrounded by were parents who just worked really damn hard. Like every Friday tea time, every Saturday tea time, we were in that chip shop and we just had to get on with it even if it was someone's birthday or if there was anyone was ill we had to just crack on and keep working and i think that what that instilled in me from a very early age was a sense of responsibility um like you have to crack on you have to work hard if you don't work hard then you're not really going to achieve anything in life so the yeah the food was there but it was kind of always in the background i think it did plant a little seed in me that would come to fruition a bit later on and I would start to turn to food as a as a great source of comfort but in the chip shop if I weren't if I wasn't eating steamed fish or steak and kidney puddings I'd be going down to the local shop to buy big the 10p cola bottles I, I used to eat so many sweeties and I used to spend my money that I earned from peeling potatoes on sweets. Those are properly lovely, fond memories of childhood, aren't they? Like buying sweets with any spare cash you have. Are there some lovely memories of your time then? And I'd love to hear more about, you know, family meals, because I can imagine that would have been really tricky given the hours everyone was keeping and the work ethic of actually running a chip shop and a business. Yeah, we didn't really... We had meals on a Sunday, like every Sunday mum would do I think I remember mum doing a roast every Sunday and for some reason I remember there being trifle she often did crumbles but I didn't really like mum's crumble because it was always too watery and the crumble topping was too powdery um but we used to make an an event to come together at special occasions like uh, Christmas and Halloween and and every Sunday when we could so while it was quite a manic and busy time for us all as a family we did revel in the rare moments that we had together outside of the chip shop. And I think that in turn solidified a sense of the importance of family for me and the importance of community. Because even though we were working together in a stressful situation in the chip shop, and undoubtedly I was being a little, you know, a little monster with my parents, nagging them and wanting things when we were down at the, at the dinner table it was much more of a special very informal occasion even though mum even though we sat at the dinner table and mum made roasts and trifles we always had a good laugh together at the dinner table as it should be now oh, that's very sweet and absolutely and we've lost so much of that now i think it's wonderful to hear you talking about that and you know we should all bring it back and enjoy those precious times together. Did you actually help her at all, John? Did you get stuck in sort of peeling and chopping and stirring, baking? Not in the early years, because I used to I used to do fairy cakes with her and butterfly cakes with her, and those little cakes that you get in a box with a rice paper. I always remember Tom and Jerry rice paper discs that we stuck on top of the cakes. But for the most part, my mum's quite a controlling controlling woman. She you know she's she's a businesswoman. She doesn't like mess. And so if it, if we weren't having a dedicated day of baking together, there'd be no helping in the kitchen. We'd be 
having to do something else unless it was washing up. I remember standing on the chair having to wash up with my sisters in the sink. But I, I kind of like that about my mum. I like how regimented she tried to be because she isn't a regimented person at all. Like she's quite, quite chaotic in a way. Um, but her, her trying to gain control was always through food, which is quite interesting because then I would, I would come to lean on food as a method of control as well. I want to talk about this memoir because we've slightly gone into talking about your childhood already. And um, as of currently, your memoir is already a bestseller. I believe so. It's it's very humbling because ultimately it's just the story of a little lad from Lancashire. And the fact that people seem to be taking some comfort and solace from it is very humbling. And I'm glad because, you know, when you sit down to write something like that, it's a difficult thing to write a memoir because you have to look at the facts of your past through a, in a very calm and objective way while trying to maintain a, a, enough closeness to be emotive in the language, but enough distance to not get dragged back into it. So it's quite a tricky thing to to navigate but I'm really glad that I did I'm really really proud that I managed to sit down and get that book written because now it's done I can move on with the next part of my life hopefully <laughs> well I mean you've got to stop and enjoy this moment I mean, what actually inspired the memoir I mean how did that come about well after Strictly my publisher asks me to write it because we've been talking about writing a kind of mental health not a self-help book because I'm not in any position to offer any advice, but my publisher wanted to, me to speak about mental health because I've been so open about it on television and on social media in publications. And then after Strictly, she said, right, you need to, you need to put all your thoughts now into this, into this memoir. It can be centered around food if you want it to be. And it was my publisher, Joe, who actually while she was in the shower, had the, the thought of the title, Dancing on Eggshells. And for me, it was the, the title that sold it. When she said to me, we want you to write Dancing on Eggshells, I thought, okay, yep, I have to write this now because it was the perfect title to kind of put a conclusion and, and say a thank you to Strictly Come Dancing and to acknowledge the fact that food has been woven through the fabric of my memory and my life. But also the fact that I have struggled with mental health and I continue to struggle with mental health and that's where the kind of delicate dance on eggshells comes into play so it was a really clever title and it was the title what what sold it to me it's so clever it just sums up absolutely everything about you so succinctly so well done Joe. I hope she's listening um lots of people have read <laughs> the book and they've been giving you some great feedback on it what can we find in it have you got some juicy gossip from Strictly inside it I mean there's Strictly I do speak about Strictly very candidly, very honestly and openly, because Strictly, I, you know, whether, whether it was Great British Bake Off, which I did 11 years ago, or Strictly, which I did two years ago, my personal characteristics are such that after a great high like that, I mean, I think anyone who experiences Strictly will naturally feel some a sense of come down. But for me, what was interesting is that after both Bake Off and Strictly, I, I kind of went into self-destruct mode. So while there is a bit of Strictly chat in there, it really is part of the bigger picture, the narrative that I've wanted to, to create or at least to, to convey that, you know, life is full of ups and downs and everything in between, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. And learning to navigate that as we grow older and become hopefully more wise uh, on the on the pathway of our own personal journeys that's what the story's about and it kind of 
it's about battling the ideas of what does love mean, what does integrity mean, how that can shape shift and change. And what I've loved about it is that it's kind of given me a bit of insight into my character and how capricious I am as a person. And I've always known that, but I've never really wanted to admit it because I always saw that as a great weakness. Whereas now, having written the book and reflected on the ups, the downs, the mistakes and the wins, I realised that caprice is often a thing to behold and to, to hold on to if it can be navigated properly, if it can be directed in the right direction. So I've loved writing this book. I think what people will get from it is, even though it's my story, people are people have said that they are getting a little bit of insight into their own personality, into their own behaviour, into their own choices. But also, ultimately, the overarching message is that it, it, is, it is okay to make a mess and rebuild. It's okay to start again. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Would you do more cookbooks? Have you thought about that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm making a, I'm making a, not really a comeback, but I'm starting to focus my attention my, and my energy back onto cookery completely because after Strictly, I kind of lost myself a little bit in the, in the razzle dazzle of life and in, in life after Strictly. Whereas now, my partner and I have just cleaned the cookery school that we opened. We opened it back originally in 2016. And then when COVID came along, we had to shut down and it's been just sat under dust for the past three years. It's set in a really beautiful 400 year old barn, um, in the middle of rural Lancashire. And I wanted to shift the focus away from myself, but to make it more about the location that we're in, which is so cozy and comforting, but also to make it about the food. I think I've, I've had enough now of talking about me <laughs> and now I'm ready to focus my attention back on my creativity and, and the fact that when you share food with people, you create a little community and a sense of togetherness, which I think for a lot of years I was missing in life. That's quite interesting because I love how when you talk about the barn, it almost conjures, it almost feels like an extension of your own kitchen. And we were talking about these family meals and bringing the family together and how precious that is. And it almost feels like you're extending that and welcoming people into a bit of your own life and, you know, those comforts of cooking. That's exactly how it is, because when we do the classes, we teach, well, I teach 10, 10 strangers and 
at the end of the day, about three, four o'clock, we all sit down to eat whatever it is we've created. Usually it's afternoon tea or pastry. And we just sit and chat and strangers become friends. And then we have people come back for more a few months later. And it just is a sense of community. It doesn't matter what religion, race you are, it doesn't matter any of that. Anyone is welcome in our cookery school and we will welcome people with open arms. And we have difficult conversations. You know, we have people with very right-wing views and people with very left-wing views around the table. But we encourage people to, to talk openly and honestly around the dining table because that's what a dining table is for. It's a place to safely and securely speak about your life and your experiences, but also to learn new things and learn whether it's cookery but also new information from other people that you might not have considered in your in your life and I love that I love how it's a safe space for everybody and we make friends and we make beautiful delicious treats too as I say, it's a very noble exercise where I mean, we all need to be cooking more, you know, learning about ingredients and techniques. And I think it's wonderful. Are you going to invite children along? Can I send my two, John, to be taught how to cook uh, by someone who's not their mother, please? <laughs> I think I will. I want to do summer school classes for kids eventually. Um, but it's just making sure we've got the, first of all, the staff to help me um, and just the wherewithal to cope with 10 destructive little monsters because <laughs> I've got I've got about eight or nine nephews and nieces and I know how much attention they do need but I do I'd love to be able to teach kids because I think that is something we are missing so much I mean what really saddens me is how all the good stuff in life is extracted from us whether it's whether it's good decent food whether it's the ability to move our bodies more and then they're sold back to us in the way of healthy foods and uh, medical advice and exercise classes. And it just seems so sad that the, the, the key things that we need as human beings are taken away from us and then sold back to us. So it would be great to be able to teach children the importance of ingredients and the importance of avoiding ultra-processed food and cooking really healthy, nutritious meals from scratch and also how much cheaper it is to cook from scratch when, once you've invested in that pantry of ingredients. Yeah, I mean, you make some incredibly valid points. And, you know, it is true that, in fact, you don't have to spend a lot of money. If you know how to cook, you can do a lot of great things with very cost-effective um, products and ingredients. It's just about that know-how, isn't it? It's knowing what you need to do. And even with exercise, right, you could go for a walk in nature. It doesn't need to be complicated or sort of costly. No, it doesn't. So it would be so great to combine health and cookery and baking and, and kind of strike a balance, you know, have a treat on the one hand, but also enjoy a bit of exercise in nature on the other, which is really a perfect metaphor for life, isn't it? Yeah, Everything's about the middle ground. It's fantastic. But I'd love to, what I want to do is kind of re-establish myself and reintroduce myself to food because food has been a little bit of a fearsome thing for me because I, I have an eating disorder, unfortunately, so I sometimes restrict myself too much. But now that I'm kind of on the straight and narrow and I'm in a really great place, I'd love to be able to experience new cuisines, travel a bit more, get ideas, come back and then teach them. And not in a kind of appropriative way where, I, you know, I head out to a foreign destination come back and steal the recipes but more of a kind of these are the flavors that i learned and here's how to use them in our in our culture i don't ever want to be you know the, the typical guy who flies out gets a recipe steals it that's not that's not what i'm about i want to honor culture rather than appropriate it 
This makes me very happy for lots of reasons. And why not? You know, we live in a global world and there's no intellectual property on flavor. You know, you're allowed to be inspired by flavor, right? So it sounds great to me. <laughs> I think it's a funny conversation that of, of appropriation and food because food inherently in most cultures is about sharing and about welcoming people into the community, isn't it? Whether it's through great ritual or just a very humble offering in one's own ho home. But I think the problem is when it becomes too appropriated and the people, people misname things when that, and, and say, oh, this is an Indian recipe when it's actually not. You know, the ignorance behind it, I think, is the problem. So I want to make sure that whatever I do, I do it with good intentions and with integrity and dignity for the culture. Well, that's very decent of you, John. What is your favourite thing to cook at home? Oh, I well, one thing that I often cook as a real treat for my partner is corned beef hash, because his mum, Irene, makes corned beef hash, and nothing I make, whether it's extravagant, beautiful patisserie or a home-cooked stew, nothing I make will ever compare to his mother's corned beef hash. So on special occasions, like Valentine's Day and, and um, his birthday, I'll make my version of corned beef hash, which he absolutely adores. So what does this involve, please? You're going to have to talk us through this corned beef hash because you can't say A and not B. <laughs> That's true. So what I do is I always make a little, um, a very impromptu kind of uh, sofrito. So just an onion and then I grate, grate the onion, grate some celery, grate uh, a carrot, fry that off, add some chopped up corned beef from a can, throw in some Worcester sauce and some cooked new potatoes once that's all mixed and mingled, season it well, I then mash it down in the pan so it becomes a bit kind of like a, well, a hash. And then what I do is I top it with breadcrumbs and cook it until the breadcrumbs are uh, crispy. Whereas Paul's mum's corned beef hash is more like a corned beef stew. So mine's a drier version and hers is the wetter version. Mm. And I like mine. But Paul likes his mum's. His mum's is the best for him. <laughs> I think we're going to have to have a separate word with Paul about this. He needs to be very grateful because your version sounds amazing. Well, even if it were better, I don't think he would admit that in public in fear of upsetting his mother. I think he has to let his mum believe that everything she makes is the best. <laughs> of course. Good, good mummy's boy. We like those. It's a yeah. good thing. Yeah. I know that you have a very special method for making tea, which I approve of thoroughly, I wanted to tell you. And I wanted to ask if there's anything else you can think of that every home kitchen should get right, but doesn't. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I'm really glad that we're on the same wavelength with tea, because if it's not a really good brewed cup of tea, it's not worth having. But in terms of the things that I see people making mistakes with, I always think people cook their or bake their Victoria sponges at too high a temperature. When I see these really dark golden domed Victoria sponges, I just kind of, I get a little bit upset for, not for me, but for what they could have experienced, the, the life that they could have had. So I always think, make sure you turn your oven down. People people forget that if you've got a fan-assisted oven, you have to knock it back by about 15, 20 degrees Celsius. So a good Victoria sponge in a fan oven should be about 160 degrees Celsius for about 18 to 23 minutes. Lovely and pale and beautifully flat, I always think. So get your Victoria sponge right, and then you are on to a winner with everything else, I think. Get to know your oven, basically. People don't get to know their ovens. Is that the entry-level bake? Would you say that perfecting a Victoria sponge is like the first thing uh, you know, novice baker should get right? Yeah, I would say so. So when we're going to do, we're going to, we're planning to do beginners, complete beginners baking classes at the cookery school. And what I intend to teach them is a Victoria sponge, a chocolate muffin, 
a buttercream and a ganache, and also to demonstrate the difference in ratios between a pound cake, a Victoria sponge, but also a muffin and how that uses liquid as well as dry ingredients and butter and sugar. So just to get people realising that baking is all about ratio. One of my favourite baking books ever written, or it's not really a baking book, but it's a food book, apart from Harold McGee, is by a guy called Michael Ruhlman, his book Ratio, because that's what baking's all about. And indeed some cookery as well. Once you've got specific ratios, you can experiment and try new things and you won't go far wrong. So baking is all about the rules, about knowing the rules and then just bending the rules, but not breaking them. That's so true. And I love how you've picked some really basic techniques and recipes right there, because I know there's been some industry research re- recently that shows that uh, a lot of people are cooking the most basic of bakes at the moment because you have easily available ingredients. You know, they're not, they're opting for things that are the classics and actually nailing those classics is so important. That's going to keep us in good stead for so long, right? It definitely is. I mean, I think, you know, it's great to experiment with new bakes and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm on a kind of, at the minute, I'm on a hyper focus of laminated viennoiserie and croissant dough because I just get obsessed with things and I want to make them perfect. And I'm enjoying that. But really, I think the classics are a classic for a reason, like the Victoria sponges, the scones. I mean, it took me years to master how to make the perfect scone. I'm not kidding. It must have taken six to eight years to master the perfect scone. And now I am deeply proud of my scone recipe. So hmm. I guess the big message from that is everybody just keep going. Yes, don't give up yet. If it took John six to eight years, you know, we've got a lifetime here of experimenting. I've got a bunch of rapid fire questions for you now, John, if that's all right. Your favorite cookbook to cook from, that's not your own. You've just mentioned ratio. Any others? I would have to say one of Ed Kimber's books, one of his One Tin Bakes books, because Ed Kimber is such a great creative guy and I love him. So I'm going to say Ed Kimber's One Tin Bakes. Great choice. What do you eat when no one's looking? Frozen gummy bears. I always have a bag of Haribo gummy bears in the freezer and then I love to eat them with yogurt and frozen raspberries um, or just on their own. I am shocked and appalled, but that's brilliant. Um, (laughs) Music that you listen to when you're cooking. Oh, it has to be one of three artists, uh, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Vare, or Laura Marling, or a shuffle of all of them. Ooh, so quite, quite soulful, quite like relaxed, you know, nice, vibey music. Excellent. Um, how do you relax? Don't say dancing. For me, it has to be the gym. If I don't go to the gym every day, I have too much energy. So I have to go to the gym or do a bike ride on my spin bike. And that's a great way of relaxing. Because if if I try and relax and sit down, I'll end up going to the kitchen and making something or thinking of ideas. But if I'm completely exerting myself in the gym or on the spin bike, I finish it and I have this little moment of serenity and I'm like, okay, I can dispense with ideas for the day. I can just be. So I have to exercise to relax. Sounds great. And finally, your last kitchen disaster. Oh, croissants. Yesterday, when I was making my croissant dough, I put them in the oven and the oven to prove. And the oven had been on to to slow cook a brisket. So the oven was still residually hot. And so I looked in the oven. The croissants had kind of swollen up to these uh, Michelin men monsters. And all the butter had leached out of the layers. So I was devastated. But you know what? It happens. You move on. A lesson there for all of us. John, you've been absolutely brilliant to speak to. Thank you so much for coming along. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the BBC Good Food podcast. If you'd like to hear more podcasts, subscribe now so you're always up to date. And don't forget our bonus recipe episode is out on Thursday. Bye for now.